Ryan Grazer. Am I pronouncing your name correctly? That's right. It rhymes with laser. All right. Awesome. Well, thank you for joining me. And uh, I want to just sort of uh, put some context here that I don't think you and I have ever met or hung out in any capacity. Is that correct? No, I, our, our interactions have been limited to Facebook and me occasionally watching you play a, from a concert distance. Well, I'm sorry for both of those. Um, the uh, the uh, You reached out, I posted something, I kind of, every once in a while I get like frustrated about just people and it's not rational. I don't actually believe that, anyway, sometimes I just go fishing to see who it is I want to talk to and who wants to talk to me and I take, when people reach out to me, um, I don't take that lightly. So thank you for reaching back, reaching out to me after that post. Um, oh, you, mentioned, you mentioned something about uh, sort of geeking out on vibraphone history, which I'd love to do. And I watched <laughs> one of your videos. You had a, it's like the 14 things to know about vibraphone before going to college or something. Yeah, we just, we just put that up. Yeah. And that remind you know, I, I don't know if you know, I'm really good friends with Todd Meehan. And mm-hmm. um, I don't know if you followed Todd's exploits over the last decade or so, but your video had me giggling in many respects. And so I appreciate that sense of humor a lot in in percussion in general, not taking ourselves too seriously while still trying to teach something. But before we get into sort of vibraphone geeking out, um, can you tell me just a little bit, just so I know, and anybody listening to this knows, like, just tell me a little bit about baby Brian, like what got you into where you're from? Like what got you into doing, you know, percussion and you eventually went to Cincinnati, uh, university of Cincinnati. Is that correct? That's, yeah, I got my DMA at CCM uh, in Cincinnati, uh, my, my master's in Toronto, and my, my, my bachelor's in, in performance and composition at uh, Georgia. Okay, all right, excellent. Um, so, well, I, uh, and I didn't really take percussion you know, seriously enough to consider it as a career until like, I was you know, a junior in high school. Mm-hmm. Um, of, you know, I, I wanted to do musical things when, you know, when I was younger, and you know, my, my parents you know, let us do all the art camps and piano lessons and all that. And I just, I just tended to gravitate towards musical stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, so one, one thing to know about me is that uh, at around age five, I was diagnosed with Tourette syndrome and a few other neurological things that, you know, sort of go hand in hand with that. Mm-hmm. Um, and just, uh, especially in middle school and high school, uh, the, you know, my, my musical activity, was was actually really helpful, not just in the sense that like, it was a creative outlet, mm-hmm. but there's actually some research about uh, percussion being a form of proprioceptive therapy. So anything that's impact driven, like karate or tennis or or percussion, mm-hmm. uh, and so, so that can had. You a, say that a, word, proprioceptic, is not proprioceptive. Septic. It's proprioceptive. Okay, what mm-hmm. is that? What is just give me the dictionary definition of that if you. Oh, in your, I'm not in your best uh, in your best words in your own words. I, I think basically it's 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 that it's it's you know something that has to do with resistance, impact, and 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 hitting something. Okay. Um, I may be totally I've mis- never heard mischaracterizing the word before, it, so um, but that's that's how it was described to me. Um, and it made sense because you know as, you know somebody with Tourette syndrome has you know physical or or sorry uh, motor or vocal tics right. um, that are usually tied into the level of stress or whether you have enough sleep. Um, and I, I would see in myself that, you know, whenever I was playing percussion, it, it, it you know, that stuff went away or at least mm. drastically reduced. And actually, I remember seeing a documentary um, on music in the brain. Uh, shoot, I forget the guy's name now. I'll have to look it up. But um, he went around. He, he saw, you know, the effects of music on different people's conditions. And he visited this guy in upstate New York who was just a, a rock drummer. And the guy had really severe Tourette's drum. He was, you know, kind of moving all over the place anytime he was speaking. Mm-hmm. And then as soon as he sat down at the kit and started playing, it just he just looked like a dude playing drums. Mm. 
Um, so there, there was something there and it really was, you know, it, it, it made me feel good. Uh, and then of course, being around other percussionists, being on the drum line, all that, there's this, you know, social development aspect that helped me through, you know, the, the dangers of <laughs> puberty and all that well, other yeah, let me, social I mean, stuff. I'm, I'm sorry to interrupt. And, and again, anything I ask, I'm asking out of ignorance. And so if I, if I no. touch on anything too, too personal, just tell me like, no, I'm an open that. book. Um, how did Tourette's manifest itself in you in particular? Because I, you know, growing up, I didn't know anybody. I, well, let me say this. I didn't know if I knew anybody with Tourette's. No one told me that they had Tourette's, but um, it's like saying, well, I didn't know anybody that was gay when I was growing up. It's like, well, maybe they just didn't tell you, you know, like, right. like what, you know, I knew of Tourette's just because of the cartoonish sort of the caricatures of it that show up right, in the media right. or in cartoons or, you know, sitcoms or whatever. But how did it manifest with you particularly? Well, so the very and, and I'm I'm fortunate. I've uh, you know I, I would characterize my case as you know on the milder side. I, I remember going to like a Tourette's you know conference for kids when I was in middle school and seeing some some other kids who really had some severe cases of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, the first the first iteration I think was like when I was first diagnosed and it was just I was, I was clearing my throat a lot to the point mm-hmm. where I started getting a lot of throat infections. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it's it's sort of you know. I, I've gone through phases. I'm sure I, I'll, you know, I'm, I'm forgetting some of them. I remember at one point, you know, there's a period of time for several months where I'd like jerk my arm like that. Mm. Um, and then the, the strongest one was again, around, around when, you know, I hit puberty was uh, there'd be this sort of like hooting sound that I would make by, by inhaling really sharply. Uh, mm. And th- that was the one I think that, that had a, a big impact on just, you know, my social development and my, you know, awareness mm-hmm. of Tourette's syndrome and, and then therefore my awareness of how percussion helped me with that. Because this, this was a, a sound I was making that you would hear a, across a, you know, a, across a hallway, mm-hmm. across a band room for sure. Yeah. Um, well, and did you feel like you mentioned the sort of, and again, like um, I'm, <laughs> I don't want to open any can of worms here, but like, what did you feel like as you were growing, I mean, were you bullied for this sort of thing? Um, oh yeah. Was it, <laughs> Like, yeah, I mean, I don't, I was bullied too, but for, for different reasons, but like for something, things that, you know, you're often bullied for things you can't control, but like you, you, you did say that you found there was like a little bit of a home in the percussion world in terms of like how you felt. And I'm curious, like, was part of your gravitation towards percussion, both like, yes, it helped you physically, like in terms of the Tourette's, but also socially, like how much of that was tied into what you were feeling? Oh, like a hundred percent both. Um, and I remember as, as a high school freshman, uh, I was, you know, learning a lick for our, for our marching band show. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, our, our, our section leader, the senior there, you know, checked in on me in, in, in the back room and saw that I was, you know, I was basically done learning it. And he was, you know, he, he was, you know, showering me with praise and telling other people how quick I learned it. And I remember thinking like, this is sort of the first time in school that like somebody's making a value judgment on me based on something I did rather than, you know, some component of my DNA. Got it. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's like, we all have those at some point in our life, you know, like somebody affirms you and yeah. I'm, I'm just saying this as an educator too. It's something that I, I forget how much, and you're a teacher now too. Like, it's like, I forget how much power I have mm-hmm. in those moments, no matter how old they are, whether it's a 23 year old, you know, grad student or it's a fifth grader, like trying to figure out who needs the compliment when so that they can get through the next day, you know, like, right. Cause no, you don't exa- know like exactly. what bullshit they're dealing with, you know, outside of school and just somebody saying to you in that moment, like, anyway, I'm just saying for, for educators now, like don't underestimate how, how powerful that just those little moments of acknowledgement are. Absolutely. Um, but like, so as you progressed was, 
who made you decide you wanted to do percussion as a job or as like a living? Like, cause that, that, and when I was in high school, I always felt, I looked, looked around and I was just like, I can't believe you do this for a living. This, you're just like a, you're a cartoon of a person. Like who, who does this? You know, like how did you, who, who sort of flipped that switch for you? Well, I, I, I think I have to give credit to my, my high school percussion instructor. That's Paula Williams. Now, Dr. Paula Williams. Um, and she, uh, it was, I would say that, you know, it wasn't necessary that she was encouraging everybody to go be professionals. It was just that she, she came in and was, you know, sort of opened our eyes to all the different ways that you could be a professional musician. And so she allowed us to like pursue compositional projects in high school. And, um, you know, I was able to go up and like, like write something and play my own piece and, mm. you know, a little recital. And that, that was huge to me. Um, and then just also, she was the one who who introduced me to really playing the vibraphone. And that was sort of what, mm. uh, you know, when, when I started, you know, the first time I played a, 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 not even a solo, but just like a significant part in percussion ensemble for the vibraphone. I said, you know, this is, uh, this is the best thing that I've, I've done so mm. far. I, I really you know, gravitated towards it. Well, this is, uh, this is, uh, I'm glad you mentioned the vibraphone thing because I was, I was sitting here thinking, you know, just as a podcaster, like, how do I segue into the vibraphone? <laughs> but, but I'm like, of course, like, it's not, it's not rocket science that vibraphone is something that, that you're psyched about right now, because as a young person, it imprinted on you in some way that yeah. like, that this is tied together with your Tourette's it's tied together with the compliment that you got. Like all of a sudden now you play, you have a success on one instrument that has a voice to you. And all of a sudden now your voice is, you have a different voice, a one that you don't have to clear its throat every time you can just press a pedal, right. you know, like, right. or, you know. And for me, that was like the steel drum. Like that, when mm. I was in high school, I just was looking around. I was like, "Why is anybody doing anything else other than this? This is crazy! Like, what's wrong that, with you people?" That's you know? exactly how I felt. Yeah, and and I like in the primacy effect of that is something I just can't get out of my DNA. Like, no matter, mm-hmm. what, I'm 42, and I'm still like, I walk into Carnegie Hall with so percussion, and I look around, I'm just like, "Why are we playing anything but pan right now? <laughs> like, you guys are crazy." Um, but so so you started getting into vibraphone. Can you tell me a little bit, like, why? I mean, I, I gathered a little bit from your videos, like you, you clear, there's something about the vibraphone and, and its flexibility and it's, um, it's the spectrum of its, of its voice, of its potentiality is much wider than I think people think about or give it credit for because most mm. percussion instruments are fairly limited, like, like the marimba, the snare drum, the glockenspiel, like there's, everything comes with a bag of limitations that you have to, you have to tease through, you know, but right. For you, what was it about the vibraphone that got you like geeked out? I mean, the the very very first thing when I was younger was that just I liked the sound of it better. You know, I, I liked that it that it you know I I could have longer notes. I liked that it was this sort of pure. You know, I, I don't know. There's something about metals that that I, I always just gravitate towards. Um, and then as I got more into playing it at, at a more advanced level, I I you know discovered that there's actually a lot more that you can do with this. You have, you have many more options and many more responsibilities, therefore, because mm-hmm. simply just letting all the notes ring is, is not an option. Um, and I found that, you know, especially as a composer, the more that I started writing and, and you know, the more creative ideas I started coming up with, the more I realized, why, well, if I put it on, you know, any other instrument besides vibraphone, I, I feel like I have to sort of put limits on, on what I'm writing. Mm. Yeah, I mean... One of the things that I, I mean, I remember when I was studying vibraphone in school, and when I say studying it, like I had a semester where I had to work through the Dave uh, Friedman. That's right. The Friedman book. dampening and pedaling. Yeah. And I, I remember having a similar feeling that I had to playing or learning timpani. 
and that I feel like I would have had if I had to learn tabla. Mm, like there's mm. there the barrier to sound really good is like there's an exponential curve that you have to get past before like like timpani for example like yes you can make an okay sound pretty quickly but can you do it in tune <laughs> maybe you can maybe your ears are really good you can tune it up but timpani are kind of hard to make a great consistent sound like there's a skill set there i was just like why am i why am i in ninth grade studying timpani right now i this like that guy should be doing something else vibraphone there like as soon as i got in the book i was just like what the fuck like there's like <laughs> a million and then you listen to gary burton you're like why would i it's like be like okay we're gonna study tabla let's listen to you know sandeep berman and you know alaraka from you know uh silk road or whatever like or uh ravi shankar like <laughs> you know so like but for you that was something that was attractive like there was this sort of endless sort of open source <laughs> potentiality there yeah there's there's you know as a you know i say as a composer but as, as a performer too i feel like you know pieces that somebody else has has written you know i i can add more as an interpreter because i know this instrument better than most composers mm-hmm. um and and so therefore you know it's, it's like listening to you know three different people you know record bach you know you want to listen to three different people because they can do different things with voicings and, and phrasing mm-hmm. and and you know i feel like if you get two vibraphone players who really know what they're doing then you get the same thing you get two people who can use the pedaling and dampening and all these other effects uh to create totally different realizations of the same piece and that's that's why we we keep playing playing things hundreds well, of years later what do you feel i mean uh, is there anything i got the hint from your video again like i've only scratched the surface on your 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 your, your oeuvre so forgive me for my ignorance here but like what what are some pedagogical things if you could just go into every school right now and be like and just take one thing out and put another thing in that would change the way people studied vibraphone let's maybe keep it specific to that like mm. what are some big pet peeves you have about the way percussionists or or composers quite frankly um approach the vibraphone well if if you saw the video then i'm sorry that i'm going to repeat my stuff a little bit (laughs) um uh number one biggest thing is is that a lot of performers and composers especially composers who are percussionists who happen to also be composers um they will basically write or play music for the vibraphone that's really for the marimba and, you know, occasionally, you know, you put the pedal down, you have some whole notes or, or half notes, but otherwise, you know, it's just a lot of licky marimba stuff. And there's, there's nothing taking advantage of what the instrument can do. And look, like if, you know, if you're a composer listening to this, write what you want to write. And if it's basically just like a licky marimba piece, but you just need a metallic timbre, then, then do it. Right. Um, but pedagogically, you know, I, you know, you, you could basically put that same piece on like, flute and there's no difference if it's just a whole sequence of notes with nothing else going for it so i I think you know learning how to do the more interesting things on the instrument is is going to you know is is, it's just going to benefit everybody um i remember when when mark applebaum came to visit uh ccm for for a a short thing and i i played his his vibraphone solo in in the the concert and i asked him hey i've got this this like custom tomorrow instrument and it has this special thing with the the motor that's that's going on um I know that you said that you, uh, you know, you don't want motor on or, or whatever, but I think if I do this, it'll sound good. And I can also do dampening here to do this. And he just looked at me and said, look, like whatever you can do to make me sound better, go for it. <laughs> so, that, yeah, yeah. so we should, ha- we should be able to do that for, for anybody. Well, some of that, some of that is the responsibility of the percussionist to teach composers about, I mean, cause you know, composers don't wake up with this 
instinctual knowledge of vibraphone, <laughs> vibraphone pedaling, you know, or, or the idea that a half pedal is a thing or mo- motor speed or whatever. Like, uh, and that's something that, you know, for me that I've learned a ton about just like in making mistakes of composers writing for steel drums in particular mm-hmm. being like, do right. this or do, you know, do, don't do that. And then I realized like, Oh, I've just told them all the things that I'm really good at, but that is that, is that always the most helpful thing for the steel pan or for them as composers, you know? Um, but it's, yeah, I mean, the vibraphone is kind of like, it's like a Lamborghini that often <laughs> is never taken out of first gear. That's a good way of putting it. Yeah. You know, like I think, and I'll say that for myself too. Like, and this is something I'm going to cop, I'm going to cop to just because I, I want to ask you one question that I feel like destroys the, the, I don't want to say the legitimacy, but the street cachet of the vibraphone in many people's eyes, including myself. I think I know what you're going to ask. It is that the motors never work. Oh, that's not what I thought you were going to ask. And as someone who backlines marimbas a lot when we go places, you, I can never tell a composer to write. Steve Mackey for It Is Time wrote a very a specific metronome marking speed on the vibraphone mm-hmm. for this one spot that lines up with something somebody else is doing. It happened on the record. Uh. Our motors are broken. Every motor we we backline is broken. And so the first thing out of my mouth to every composer these days, when they're like, oh, you want to write for vo- for motor? is like, well, you can, but it's never going to work. And immediately it's just like the wall comes uh, down, you know. And I'm saying that I'm copping to my own sort of bullshit here. But how much should we be talking to vibraphone manufacturers right now to be like, listen, <laughs> we got to make a vibraphone with two moving parts and something that can't be taken apart by a fifth grader? Right, right. Well, I mean, <laughs> if we're going to talk about this in any sort of long-term sustainability, like you know, if if the Lamborghini you're driving is constantly having the wheels t- st- t- stolen off of it at night, right? Then it's not a Lamborghini anymore. It's a Honda Civic without wheel. I mean, it's just the same, you know. So, like, <laughs> right? Well, I'm I'm spoiled. I've I've got my my Demaro vibraphone back here, so yeah. uh, I have not had problems with the motor. Um, but you know, to be fair, I've I've only had it for 14 years. Um, so I, I mean, it's, it's sort of, you know, the repair and maintenance thing, right? If you have a busted gauge on, on your timpani, or if you have a, you know, a a bent resonator on your marimba, you'd go out and you'd, you'd deal with it. Um, I think that one of the reasons why we consider the motor to be like, once, once it's done, then let's just not worry about it. And let's just keep playing the instrument is because it's not, you, it's not often required, um, and, and so, especially, you know, manufacturers, and it's a good thing that they do this, but, you know, they offer models without a motor, save you a thousand, twelve hundred bucks. And so because it's not always essential, it's, I'd say usually, it's not usually essential. Um, what you have are, you know, people who just get used to the idea that it's, it's always optional. Yeah. Um, so I guess it really just depends on, on, you know, how, how important it is to you. Right. I mean, you could, you could buy a new one. You could get, you know, electrician to come in and take a look at it. Honestly, if my motor dies, I'm, I'm going to just, you know, I'm going to call Doug tomorrow up or, or, or an electrician up and say, Hey, I just, I don't know how to fix it, but you know, please tell me what, you know, yeah. what, what do That's I need just, to pay you to do it? It's some, I mean, as somebody who's like, I have a close relationship with Kyle Dunleavy, who's a steel drum builder and tuner, mm-hmm. you know, it's like, so if JetBlue throws my, my pans and they go out of tune, I can just call Kyle. Yeah. Most people don't have that that luxury of just picking up the phone and calling Doug tomorrow and being like, Hey, this thing doesn't work. Like, right. I feel like you need to start like some sort of, you know, like, um, I don't know who is it like 
Best Buy that has the Geek Squad or whatever that yeah, just drives yeah, around yeah. and fixes. You just drive around and fix vibraphones. Like I feel like that might do us. Well, I'm curious. What was the what was the thing you thought I was going to say about? The I thought you were going to talk about the range. Oh, uh, and I have this whole like response ready nope, to go. Well, we're, well, okay. Let me let me let me talk about the range for a second. Um, I actually love that limitation of just F to F, and I kind of hate the extended range vibraphones. Oh no. So, <laughs> podcast over. <laughs> the extended well, I, range I, vibraphone is like my specific interest. <laughs> well, that's great, and I have. Well, and I say that again. I have an extended range set of double seconds that are, you know, um, what I've what I've and maybe tomorrow's figured this out. I've always noticed, like as soon as you go one note lower than that F natural, all of a sudden the sound quality starts to get a bit low. It's like, oh, maybe there's a reason that F was the lowest they always went because as soon as you tune metal bars that are that big, you get these weird harmonics. So anyway, I'm talking out of my ass a little bit here, but like, what? well, you're. You're you're not entirely. Um, am I am I am I allowed to to rag on specific brands or should I can I, you, should I keep them anonymous? As long as you accept full responsibility for anything that comes your way. Okay. Well, <laughs> then I'm not going to um, rag on brands, but I but I but I will I will say things that I. Yeah, I'm, I'm, you okay. you do you. That's all. I all ask right. Of well, any so guess. I'll I'll I'll, I'll I'll keep this as as uh, observational as possible. No judgment. Um, quantitative not qualitative that's right quantitative so for instance uh in 2006 i went to PASIC and i i was that was when i was looking or maybe it was 2008 but i was was looking at buying a four octave vibraphone i committed Mm -hmm. to making that my interest Mm -hmm. uh and steve weiss's booth had a four octave yamaha vibraphone uh on the floor as a demo Mm -hmm. and i I was gonna buy it i called my parents one night i said okay you know let's line up the money let's buy it and then the next day, I wanted to bring my professor, uh, who was Tony McCutcheon at the time, to, to go listen to it. And they actually had it in a quiet room. And so I listened to it, and that's what convinced me not to buy it. Mm. Um, and so you mentioned the, the overtones on the bottom end. What I saw on the Yamaha is that after the low F, the bars don't get any wider. Mm. So mm. what happens is, yeah, the, the, low, the, the E under the F is close enough that I, you know, it kind of sounds normal. But mm. then because the, the width of the bar doesn't get adjusted... What you what you get is is less and less of the fundamental and more of the overtones. Mm-hmm. Um, I I I can accept that you know for somebody who's like gigging around and who wants portability that you know if if that's your thing, especially if you're doing like a bunch of jazz gigs, and you got to fit that in the back of a, a car or something. Mm-hmm. That's necessary, and I totally get it. This this tomorrow, I said it's four hundred pounds. It takes me fifty <laughs> minutes to break it down and put yeah. it in the car. Yeah. So like th- there's a trade off. Um, yeah. Go ahead. Sorry, sorry. I didn't mean to interrupt. No, it's all right. Um, so the, <laughs> the, the history of the four-octave vibraphone is, is one of those things that I was hoping to geek out about here. Yeah, please. Um, please. But before I do, I, I will say to any, anybody listening, um, there is a lot of you know, flack that, that I hear about the vibraphone, you know, even just the three-octave one, being so much smaller than the marimba, and therefore that's why people aren't as interested in it. Uh, and, and I would say that you know, all you have to do is look at all the other instruments, the non-percussion instruments and see how many of them have ranges of three octaves or less, you know, all, you know, the Bach cello suites are written for less than three octaves. The violin partitas and sonatas less than three octaves. They, you know, people have figured out how to write for smaller than a five octave marimba. So I would, I would say that. Well, I um, think also too, like, I mean, I, I think there's something to be said for, again, like limitations to some degree. Like I, there is a, I mean, I'm curious to give for you to give me some context on the on why the range is F to F, and you know, uh-huh. I, I can like I can tell you basically like you know why double second steel drums are 
nine times out of 10 E to A or E to B flat or something, you know, like there's, there's a history there, but most of that has came from necessity and resources and just sort of the way people built things over time. Like, but why did the vibraphone, why is the vibraphone only, (laughs) you know, Um, because of world war two. No shit, really. I love World War Two. I mean, I don't. Sorry, I don't love World War Two. I I love the history and the context around it. Like what? So, um, so it turns out, you know, when the vibraphone was first invented, um, it, it was very much a, an oddity. It was a novelty, and there wasn't really this idea where you know, as the moment it was invented, everybody knew that it was you know this range. That was not at all the case. And mm-hmm. you know, in the first like five or ten years of its existence, there was a lot of you know experimentation. Well, let's make a two and a half octave. Let's make a three and a half octave. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, based on on everything that I've been able to research, uh, in nineteen thirty uh, thirty nine, mm-hmm. Boozy and Hawks had the Ajax line of instruments and they advertised a four octave C to C vibraphone Mm. in 39. Um, But we don't know if any of them were actually sold and they shut down their whole operation because of world war two and never, never resumed. All of of that aluminum needed to be used for bullets and exactly things like like that. But the other thing to look at are the earliest pieces written for vibraphone. Mm-hmm. So gen- like what we, we generally consider Lulu the, you know, to be the first piece, the, Al- the Alban Berg opera, uh, to be the first you know, concert piece that, that had the vibraphone in it. Um, and that was sort of the subject of my, my doctoral research was that part in the Lulu opera and also the five-movement symphonic suite is written for a four-octave instrument. Hmm. And that was in 1935. Four-octave. So right now the instrument is F to F. Yeah, that's but, three but octaves, the, F to but F. But the original range was... Was the C higher to C. C or lower C? The, uh, the C Both. Yes, yeah, C to C. Oh, got it, got it. Okay. Yeah. 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 Um, and that part, now, it, in editions that I've seen, it's it's an ossia, but it goes low and it goes high. It goes, mm-hmm. it, it's the, the full four octave range. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was in 35. So I had this whole theory where, you know, well, Boozy and Hawks was in London and the BBC Symphony, they were the ones who, who recorded and broadcast this Lulu suite. So maybe they got a custom instrument. Um. And then I found out that Darius Mio also wrote a piece in 32, 1932. It's, it was uh, incidental music to a, a play by Paul Claudel, La Nance Fête Marie. And that part goes down to a low C. Mm. And then I found out that in 1929, Havergal Bryan, he's this English composer. He's famous because he wrote the longest symphony. <laughs> uh, he's written like 100 symphonies. Uh, he, um, he wrote a, uh, an opera, the, uh, the tigers, which has only ever been performed once in the eighties because the score was lost and then recovered. Mm-hmm. Um, it has a part for two vibraphones and one of them goes down to a low C. Well, and the other one is for what range? Sorry, the, the other, sorry, the, the other vibraphone part is for what? Oh, so, so what he basically did was he has like a, a treble and a bass. So honestly, oh, got it. Somebody today could just look at it and play it as, you know, as if it was our grand staff. But back then they right. weren't thinking about that. Right, right. Well, and so at the time, though, this was Ajax was the company that was supplying or building these instruments? Or Well, that's what I don't know. Because we know Ajax had one in their catalog in 1939, but I don't know where the one would have been that he was writing for in 1929. And when, when did, and again, pardon my ignorance here, when did Deegan come out onto the scene? So Deegan, so so Leedy invented theirs in 1921. Leedy, yes. And then 
Deegan came out with their model 145 in 1927. And that's the one that was the first vibraphone that had aluminum bars and a pedal. Before that, there were no vibraphones with pedals. So like everything was just ringing. Huh? Why did they put the pedal on? Was there uh, some to, to give them more control to, you know, to, to be able to do the, the damper, the damper. But there was, there was no composer that was like, can you dampen this? Like, it was like who, who was the, like, why did that idea even come up? Probably damper. feedback from the performers, right? Cause this was 1927. They came up with it. So there were no compositions for jet for, for vibraphone at that point. It would all have been feedback from vaudeville or jazz players who were tired of throwing their <laughs> waistcoats on the instrument at the end of every piece to get them to stop ringing. <laughs> Fair enough. Yeah. Um, but there were some really funky early experiments. You know, the, the earliest vibraphones had steel bars instead of aluminum. So they sounded really like junky and a lot of overtones. Um, that, that first recording, the, the, the senior Frisco recording is on a steel bar one, the leady. And, and that, you know, apparent uh, legend has it that, you know, hearing the sound of that vibraphone is what made the Deegan people want to make theirs, but better. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, so you're talking about uh, busted motors. One of the really cool early uh, things that was done, especially in the, the British models, the Premier and, and the, the Boozy and Hawks models, was they had wind-up clockwork motors rather than electric mm-hmm. ones. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, again, like, uh, that, it seems crazy to say those, like, wind-up clock motor now, but, like, at the time, that's how things ran on their own without... That's right. ...electricity. I mean, like, it's not like... Yeah, we can just plug things in now and it's not a big deal. Yeah. Like the available, like there wasn't just outlets everywhere. Well, hey, you know, if, if you John know, like, Adams writes a piece for a vibraphone in a forest, if you had a clockwork motor, you could do it with the motor. Right, right, right. Well, that <laughs> actually, I'm trying to think if that would be more, uh, more than one, more, more than two moving parts or whether like, we, should we go back to the clock ticking motor? Like, like rather than I, the, sometimes I kind of, I kind of wonder. Like just wind it up and and well yeah okay so let me this so, all right so World War Two happens though mm-hmm. what happens to the to the vibraphone I mean what happens to the people who are working on the vibraphone at this point are they so, just like well I guess I got to go to Germany now like I'm going well off so the like war. the production of all this stuff especially in, in in Europe of course but everywhere it's, it basically either halts or kills the company mm-hmm. um, and so. After World War II, you know, the, the surviving companies are, are sort of, you know, they, they've circled the wagons. They're not trying to make big splashes. They're just trying to put something out there that'll keep them in business. And so right, what we right. sort of end up with are these these three octave models. And some of them are C to C and some of them are, are F to F. And then uh, the F to F just eventually sort of wins out. And it just a preference thing, like over time, like the, the bars just over. I mean, it's like when you like, you know, timpani, for example, like the, there's just notes that sound good on the low drum as soon as you get out of the range it starts yeah let's put it on a different drum and at, at some point i imagine people on the vibraphone were just sort of like oh well this is kind of the range that just to my ears sounds the best sounds the clean it sounds the most consistent from bottom bottom to top as soon as you start going too high it gets a little like thin and wispy as soon as you go down too low you start hearing all these weird harmonics like i mean am i am i misdiagnosing that that process mm-hmm. No, and I, I think this is a theory. Like, I don't actually yeah, like yeah. have any papers to back it up. But I think that honestly, the the biggest driving force in that was just you know capitalism. You know what mm-hmm. what models were selling, and I think that had to do with you know a lot of the jazz players saying, "Hey, you know, when I play with my group, this range sounds better than this range. I don't need to go way up to you mm-hmm. know C seven. I I you know it's better for me to have the little lower half octave down here." 
Right, right. Well, what when did the uh, one of the things that struck me talking with John Beck Senior? Um, this was maybe two years ago. I we we did a podcast, and he was talking about the development of the college curriculum in the United States, and and like uh, was it NARD, the National Association of Rudimental Drummers, and like again post World War II, a lot of the folks coming back had specific military drumming, you know, playing in military bands, Navy bands, all those things. It didn't, it, it made sense that then in the college scene, the first things that teachers and students were learning was this rudimental stuff. And that really blossomed into other stuff. When did the vibraphone get injected into the college education curriculum? Because now, I mean, now it's like a, it's a, in the way that I'm trying to get the steel drum to be seen as an instrument that everyone just by default must study because of all of the important reasons. Like the vibraphone for now, 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 at least 20 years ago when I went to school is just like, well, someone decided this is what everybody needs to do now. Like, but that's, that didn't start that way. At first it was like the saxophone where everybody's like, that's a weird fucking instrument. <laughs> like, right. You know, well, well, um, so when, and the earliest like college percussion studios, as we think of them today were, you know, started in the fifties because mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. before that you'd just be like, you know, an orchestral trainee. Um, my guess is that, you know, I'm actually going to think I'm actually, I'm going to make a bold claim here and I can't mm-hmm. back it really up a whole lot, but I think that the vibraphone has sort of been in and around the college percussion studio basically as long as that idea has existed. And I think that's the case because I know that in the 1954, uh, Michael Colgrass wrote a piece which is now unpublished and I, I can't find anywhere uh, called Chant for Vibes and Chorus. Hmm. And so the 50s, that would have been when he was studying yeah. uh, with Paul Price. Right, right. So I, my guess is, you know, they had one around and therefore he wrote for it. Now, it, it could be that they had one around because they had a jazz program and maybe that's that's right. what was there. But I think it's one of these things where, you know, it's, it's kind of a chicken and an egg thing. They happened to have a vibraphone around. So those people started writing for it and using it. And because people were writing for it and using it, more schools decided that they needed it. Yeah. Well, in the, and the sort of development of, and I'm, I'm sort of asking questions out loud here too. Like in that, I, I don't, I'm not even asking you, it's sort of like, did the vibraphone develop in Europe as quickly as it did in the United States because the United States invented jazz and jazz like, or in vaudeville, like when I say invented, like, sorry, that's a broad brush, like, but jazz emanated from, from, from the United States and the vibraphone was sort of in vaudeville. The vibraphone was woven into that tapestry in a way that I, I guess I'm just, I don't know if it was, although you mentioned Lulu. So Baird clearly was, was up on that stuff. Like, there's not even. I'm not even asking you a question there. I'm just sort of being like, why the vibraphone? How did it become part of our daily diet, really, as students? Well, those so those first three composers I mentioned, uh, uh, Berg and Mio and, and Havergal Brian, they're all from Europe. Um, yeah, yeah, I know. That's why as then, soon as I asked the question, I was like, of course you got me. Like, <laughs> well, and then the the next person to write something, I think, was Messian. He was like one of the only people to write for vibraphone during World War II. So I think what it is is that. Um, it certainly like took hold of the jazz scene mm-hmm. here and it's, you know, you'll, you'll find plenty of jazz vibraphone players in Europe now, of course, but I think that it caught on with the classical contemporary composers in Europe quicker than it did here. So like in the sixties, mm-hmm. there was this whole bunch of music that was being written for the contemporary vibraphone. And most of it was coming from, from Europe. Yeah. It wasn't really until like the seventies that that sort of really took off here as well. Um, 
Well, in, in terms of American voices, that uh, there's one one composer, Stuart Saunders Smith, mm-hmm. who um, because I studied at the University of Akron, and he his archives are there, and Larry Snyder at Akron mm-hmm. is really good friends with um, not Cliff Alexis as well, but with Stuart. Um, and so I just sort of grew up with hearing the Lynx vibraphone series sort of in the in the zeitgeist around Akron all the time. Um, right. And I played the first one, I think, when I was in school. Um, but in talking with Stuart, like, he really obsessed about, obsessed about the vibraphone and the glockenspiel, mm-hmm. too, like metal instruments that's, that seem to not have, like, a real home. Like, the, there's... The marimba, some for some for one reason or another, I think maybe because the big marimba bands, like and all the marimba soloists out, think there it it beca- there's a there's an ecosystem for it. The vibraphone mm-hmm. always felt like the weird drunk uncle at the party that like <laughs> you're like cool. I, I know that you could do vibrato, Uncle Uncle Steve, but like right. whatever you know. And but people like Stewart have real and Christopher Dean, R.I.P. You know, like mm-hmm. um, Morning Dove sonnet was a was a was a piece as a kid in school, being like, okay, now that's right. a vibraphone solo. I can, right. I can get down with like other than those two and Dave Friedman, obviously. Like, who are some American composers that you feel would be good for students to check? Maybe I don't even need to limit it to American, but like, who are some composers now that you feel have really done stuff with the vibraphone that nobody else has done or is right. currently doing? Um, I do. I do want to get back to Stuart because because yeah, yeah. Uh, oh, yeah. he he and I are have have, are, are have a good relationship. Um, so, well, uh, Gita Steiner is somebody that 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 people ought to know. And and the, the Vibraphone Project, the you know my my, my nonprofit, um, we we gave out the, our inaugural Legacy Awards last summer, and she was one of the three awardees uh, nice. you know, posthumously, unfortunately. But Gita Steiner. Uh, was actually uh, a, uh, a classmate of David Friedman, mm. uh, and and then you know he actually played her first piece, her first set of three pieces for vibraphone in recital as a student. Wow! Um, and then she went on and she she wrote something like a dozen pieces with for, for vibraphone significantly, you know, several solos and, and some chamber stuff as well. Um, and I think that her her solos, you know, the four bagatelles and the sonata they had a lot of play, you know, 20 years ago, 30 years ago. And then they sort of faded a little bit because, you know, she, she's, unfortunately, she's no longer with us. So she's, you know, not, not keeping her, her marketing up to date. Mm-hmm. Um, but they're fantastic contemporary pieces. And a lot of them, you know, because they have multi-movements, they're all fairly short. And, you know, you could get, you know, a, a sophomore or a junior in, in college, one movement to do as a project. And it's, it's phenomenal. Mm-hmm. Um yeah, you, you mentioned uh, Stuart. You mentioned Christine, who you know, Christine is, is sort of like the the Verez of the vibraphone to me. You know, he didn't write a lot of pieces, right, but right, the ones yeah. he did basically like reinvented the whole thing. What, what other than Morning Dove Sonnet? What I mean again, like I, I used him as the like composer for, for vibraphone example. I'm right. just like, well, I actually know only know one. So what the fuck am I talking about? Like, what what else has he written for vibraphone? So he had the apocryphal still life. That's, that's another okay. one that he, that he wrote. I've heard um, of that one. And that, that's got some really cool techniques. You prepare the vibraphone a little bit and you use, you know, some like mandolin rolls and some one handed harmonics. Mm-hmm. Um, he wrote this piece at, uh, that he premiered at PASIC, like, all, you know, I guess 15 something years ago, uh, disquietude. And you, you have to mm-hmm. use these like paint stirring sticks that you like glue on a piece of rubber. And then you do these other extended techniques with, mm-hmm. um, there's this one piece that he wrote. That's, it's not a, a, a solo. It's a trio for vibraphone and two marimbas, uh, called the topography of dreaming. And everybody has a bow and mallets. And it's just mm. one of the most beautiful things I've ever heard. Wow. Um, so yeah. And, and as far as I know, that's pretty much it. 
uh, other than you know, the larger percussion ensemble mm-hmm, stuff, but mm-hmm. that, you know, they're, you know, textbooks on, on extended techniques. Yeah. yeah. Um, and he wasn't, he was influenced by George Crumb. So mm-hmm, mm-hmm. that, you know, he, Crumb never wrote a vibraphone solo, but if, you know, look up his madrigals and, and all that to see his, his approach. Mm-hmm. Other vibraphone composers right now. Um, I mean, it really just depends on, on what you're into. That's one of the really cool things about it is that it's sort of getting a lot of interest from composers from all across the spectrum. You know, I know mm-hmm. a lot of people are, you know, are really into Sarah Hennies and, and, mm-hmm. and Sarah's got some phenomenal stuff. Um, There's a piece by Alyssa Weinberg called Table Talk. That's a duo mm-hmm. um, that is prepared, like you prepare the vibraphone and all these, you know, with tin cans and all this different stuff. Um, Elliot mm-hmm. Cole has these uh, pieces called the Postludes. The Postludes, Yes that are really, really interesting because it does, you're only required to bow. That's right. You don't, you don't actually use, yeah, and use your fingers, but you don't actually hit the, hit the instrument. And it's like what you mentioned early on that, like the sound quality of the vibraphone is very much like a sine tone, like a Mm -hmm. very clean, clear. And, um, yeah, it's wild. Like hearing a bowed vibraphone like that after a while, like every time we do those pieces, like you can only do like two or three in a row before you're, you, you start to be like, what? Like your ears yeah. just get like flattened down by like straight sine waves, but it's like, but that's an interesting, that's interesting to me that yeah. like, you know, he's using the vibraphone in, in that that specific way. Well, you, mm-hmm. we touched on Stuart a little bit. Can you tell me a little mm-hmm. bit about your relationship with Stuart? So this this is a great transition because uh, when you're talking about the pure sine tones, because he he's t- he's said before that the the pureness of it, you know, or you know, Sylvia his wife would say the the thinness of the tone, but you know, the the, the pureness of it it basically makes it to, to his mind a uh, blank paper that he mm-hmm. considers the vibraphone to be his medium for his musical diary, because, mm-hmm. you know, it's, it's just a blank canvas and, and it's going to take whatever you take um, without influencing your writing based on the complexity of its timbre. Right. Right. Um, yeah. So he, so in 2015, um, so I guess I have to back up a bit. Uh, so I, I have a, my, I double majored it as an undergrad in composition and performance. And then I wanted to do that when I went to Toronto. Uh, but at that time, graduate students weren't allowed to double major, at least masters weren't. And now they are, and I'm still a little, little bitter about that. Um, but I was able to, you know, take some composition classes with, with uh, Christos Hatzis there and Torque mm-hmm. did a, a residency in that class. And that was great. Uh, and then I also found out that Michael Colgrass was living in Toronto. So I got to study privately with him for about a year. Awesome. Um, and then when I was a, a doctoral student, composition was my cognate, but I, I, I still, you know, I, I wanted to grow a bit more. So I found out about the, the Stuart Saunders Smith summer intensive where basically, mm-hmm. you know, you just go up and you stay at a bed and breakfast in his town and then you go spend a week with him. And that's, that's what I did. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, we, we, we stayed in contact and he's, uh, he, he, I, a few years ago, I invited him to come down to Sam Houston state university where I teach and, and he did, you know, basically a week-long residency, although it wasn't an official residency. Um, he just was kind enough to come down, and we were able to cover his flight. Mm-hmm. Uh, I just, just this past October, was able to premiere a piece that I commissioned him to write for me uh, for Vibraphone with some spoken text. Mm. Um, awesome. And, uh, yeah, and, and he, he's just a, a, a wonderful, great, great guy. I mean, he... Is it was he the one that wrote like an evening length vibraphone solo that's like an hour and a half long or something? Yes, I think he's written a few things like that. Um, yeah. and right Does now it... he he set out to write a collection of etudes mm-hmm. that he intended to be like pedagogical etudes, and it's turned into this huge book of like performance etudes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, that, 
the I worked with Stuart a bunch when I was in, at Yale. Obviously, mm-hmm. at the University of Akron too. Stuart wrote a double. Si- I premiered a lead pan solo of his that had never been played, ah. and he wrote. I commissioned him for a double second and tenor voice, male tenor voice duet. That's really gorgeous. Um, and at that time, he was telling me about this vibraphone solo he was writing uh, for. I remember it was premiered in Europe somewhere, um, Italy, I think. Uh, Bert Turner would he have been the guy that was in, doing it? I don't, I don't remember quite frankly, but, but, uh, just re- like those big sort of Stuart, I love because of the big, like, uh, just shooting for the moon. Like, mm-hmm. I'm gonna, uh, you know, whether, whether it be his solo percussion works, like, uh, and some, you know, uh, end points North, like there's just, it's a, there's a swinging for the fences is, is where I, is what I really respect about Stuart and, and yep. his compositional approach. Um, and just in the interest of time, I kind of want to just put out one final thing to you. Like, um, because I've looked at the way the, the pedagogical tools for me personally as a student that resonated the most with me now in hindsight that I wish I would, like if I could go back and go to school again, I wouldn't play any major rep pieces if I could avoid it. I wouldn't mm. go, I wouldn't play Merlin. I wouldn't play Mirage or two Mexican dances. Yeah. I would go back and every week learn one of the Image solos, the Bar Cartier. Ah. Uh huh. Um, or I would go back every week and learn one of the Jihae uh, Jung and Eric Chapit just put out a, a book of marimba solos that are Korean folk songs. Like oh, songs. okay. Like two pager, you can learn them in an hour and mm-hmm. play them on a studio class. Some of them are sight readable, you know. Ah. Um And I now like I feel like I learned, and this is something Bob Van Sice was on me a lot. Of, like when I learned timpani with him, I played ho- out of the Hawk Reiner one book, the first. 20 etudes for the entire first year at Yale. Mm. Boom. Yep. Boom. Yeah. Boom. Yep. <laughs> you know, like that was my vibe. Yeah. And I was like, what the fuck am I doing? You know, like, but I learned a lot more about myself and my timpani playing mm-hmm. by doing that. Same with the homage or these Korean folk songs. Like I don't, th- I learned Merlin really well. I didn't actually learn about myself, you know? And so like, I'm kind of <laughs> curious. I feel like the Dave Friedman book is good in some respects, but what I love about the homage and the, these Korean folk songs is that they're like, they're satisfying songs that actually are, there's a, there's a piece, you know, it's a piece. Mm-hmm. What, what is that for the vibraphone where like you, you have where the barrier to access, no matter what, like, or a book that could be good for a doctoral student or a fifth grader. Mm. Like, I know that's kind of the, the needle to, you know, put, pushing a, a camel through the eye of a needle sort of vibe, but like, yeah. what is that and why, and who's going to do it? Well, so my, my dissatisfaction with what's available is, is one of the reasons why I, I'm actually kind of slowly working on a set myself. I'm, I've, I've written Great. like two or three so far, and uh, I think one of them's already available. It, it was one that I wrote for Rhythm Scene back through the, mm-hmm. you know, the composition committee for, uh, for PAS. Um Honestly, the, I think the best thing that somebody can do is to like, just forget about the percussion music and go like learn some, some Bona or just find a a short little piece that's written for like violin or flute or something like that and play it on the vibraphone with the, you know, while making the priority of controlling every attack and every release and Mm -hmm. every bit of phrasing and every bit of, of nuance and just like, don't, don't just let anything be what it's going to be because you didn't make a decision. You have to decide mm. everything 
And that's going to teach you so much about the instrument. You know, one, one of the biggest things that, that, you know, even as a professional, so my, my wife is a harpist and we have a, a duo reflect harp percussion and we do contemporary stuff and transcription stuff. And one of the things that we did in our first tour that ended up actually teaching me something new about the vibraphone was we did a, a Saint-Saëns piece for violin and harp. Mm. And I just played the violin part on vibraphone and, you know, there's, there's no chords or anything. It's just a single melodic thing. And it just, it reminded me how much you can do with, with that instrument. So just find something like that and just learn how to play it well and, and don't take any part of the performance for granted. Well, I, I would also recommend that students like, um, you know, check out the, check out your video, first of all, of, of all the, <laughs> you know, the, your, your approach to the vibraphone. But um, yeah, I think just going back and, and especially with something that does have a lot of specific, attributes to it sonic sonic possibilities like the vibraphone like going back and just and maybe this is maybe this is where you're going to be in five years where you'll finally there there will be a book where like you know page one is working on just that that the idea of like hitting a thing and then muting the note you just hit mm-hmm. like that is such a weird uh, choreography to work out in your body yeah <laughs> you know and so like you could have a whole book that's just like here's beautiful recital worthy pieces that are just like, bing, you know, and you're, you're like really just have plenty of time to just get that technique down. Yet it still is a piece that is a beautiful vibraphone solo that could, mm-hmm. serve, you know, um, I challenge you, Brian, to, <laughs> to, uh, to do that because the method book thing is great, but also, you know, it's not written for the vibraphone. You know, and so in some respects, it's like Saint Saint is like, well, you know, he didn't think about the vibraphone he's writing. Right. So, and I, I say the same. I recommend the same things to the steel drum students. Like, go get method books, clarinet method books. Just buy them for a nickel at a at you know out of the used bin at the at the music shop. Read through them and give them right back to the music shop so they can resell them to somebody else. Like that's right. And when you're done with that, you may not have learned the steel pan, but you will have learned how to get around the instrument in a way that now you can then start doing some extended technique or whatever. But, yeah. well, man, I, I don't know if we've solved any of the world's problems today or whether or not, <laughs> I, but I will say, man, I really did learn a lot about the history of the vibraphone today. And I oh, really, good. if I'm very grateful for that and I love, I'm not a history buff and I'm not a historian, but I just love these little moments of context where like plugging something in, to like a world war and realizing right. that this was happening amongst all of this other stuff that there's something also right now that's being developed during a pandemic that in a hundred years from now, somebody's going to be like, well, you know how that came about 2022, there was a pandemic and people were locked inside and somebody wrote this code for this program. And were they not locked inside for two years? But you know, in a hundred years, people are just gonna be like, well, look at this awesome code. You know, it's like, yeah, yeah, but, but it came out of this crazy time in our lives, you know, and like you have to yeah. look at it that way. And so th- it was really helpful to have you walk through it. I'm going to check out that Lulu and the Mio and the O'Brien pieces too. So, man, Brian, I, again, from the bottom of my heart, thank you for being proactive and reaching out to me. Um, oh, thanks for opening up an invitation. And uh, the door, my policy is my door is always open. If you ever want you have another project or um, when you write that method book, 
Um, that's that's right. You can come on here and, and, and hawk it for uh, we'll, we'll, we'll try to sell it to as many people as we can. But man, in the meantime, stay healthy, stay safe. And I will really look forward to uh, chatting with you again soon in the future. But in, in, in the meantime, uh, is there a place where folks can find out more about you said the Vibraphone project and, and, and the stuff yeah. that you're working on? Where can folks find that out? Well, I guess that's the thing to hawk right now. The, the, so the Vibraphone project, it is, it is an official 501c3 uh, organization um, that, that I founded. Uh, I think I started in, in 2018. I started getting people together for it. And um, so you can just go online. It's the vibraphoneproject.org. Um, I don't know if it has a V or not. Maybe it might just be vibraphoneproject.org. Okay. Um, but yeah, we, we've got information. We have uh, an ongoing educational series on, on YouTube. We have, uh, we, we have some commissions. We actually are going to be premiering later this year from the, some, some commissions that we got funded through New Music USA. Awesome. Um, we may be opening up an online performance contest soon. Um, we had a call for scores last year. We, we, you know, all kinds of fun stuff. And we are still looking for, for interested volunteers to come in and join the, join the party. It's as far as I know, it's the only nonprofit anywhere in the world dedicated to promoting and supporting the vibraphone full stop. And if you play jazz, if you play classical, contemporary, whatever, if you're a performer, composer, researcher, instrument builder, fan, uh, takes, takes all kinds. And we, we want to build that community and we're happy to have you. Well, listen, man, um, somebody's got to fight for the vibraphone. That's right. And if it ain't going to be them, it's going to be you. So um, keep, keep the vibraphone Lorax. That's what I am. (laughs) Well, and also, man, your kids didn't make a single peep this whole time. So they they did great. We can thank my wife for that. (laughs) We'll tell her I said, thanks. Uh, All right, man, Brian, stay healthy. And I'll look forward to chatting soon. All right, man. All right. Thank you very much. It was great talking to you. Likewise. Thanks, man. Appreciate it. Bye. Bye-bye. Okay, I hope you enjoyed that conversation. This podcast is brought to you by Liquid Drum, liquiddrum.com down in Waco, Texas. Uh, my good friend Todd Meehan runs an amazing percussion company down there. Great merch, great content. Check him out, liquiddrum.com. Also, Kyle Dunleavy, dunleavypans.com, D-U-N-L-E-A-V-Y pans.com. Kyle Dunleavy makes and builds all the steel drums that I perform and teach on, uh, and so percussion as well as at NYU and Princeton. Uh, he's an amazing, amazing tuner builder. Um, just a really nice guy. Very dependable. Check him out. If you are interested at all in steel pan advocacy, uh, want to learn more about the goings on uh, in pan in Brooklyn, check out paninmotion.com. My good friend Kendall Williams, uh, Jerry Guy, Trisha Guy, and uh, Arisha John run an amazing organization called paninmotion.com. Check him out. And finally, Aliandre Mirage runs an amazing uh, clothing apparel company in Brooklyn that is steel pan centric. You can check him out at Mango Chow, C-H-O-W, clothing.com. I own a bunch of his shirts. They're amazing, very stylish, uh, beautiful, beautifully made. Check them out. Mango Chow, clothing.com. Okay, hope you're well. Talk to you soon. Bye. <laughs>